Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. And I mean, I think that is the story of the century. We're going to get past this polarization and get on with the task of building a world for our kids. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs who are building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Well, today is episode 103 and we are hanging out with well-known and influential solar icon, Danny Kennedy, co-founder of Sungevity and now managing director of the California Clean Energy Fund, where he is catalyzing clean tech investment and entrepreneurship globally. Danny believes in building a new global economy where clean energy is affordable and accessible to everyone. So get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, today's Suncast guest needs almost no introduction. I've certainly just given a great intro for you about his past. We're going to spend a lot of time today on his present and his future, but I am stoked to have a friend, a mentor, and an industry veteran on the show, Danny Kennedy. Hi. Good to be here. (laughs) Hi, indeed. Here we are high up above Oakland, so if the noise is unable to be edited out, you will no doubt hear sirens and helicopters and all the things that make this town beautiful. Helicopters. (laughs) Helicopters. You will hear helicopters. So I wanted to take a chance to interview you for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which is, as we were just briefly discussing, early in my entrepreneurial career, I met you, and it was one of the first moments where it became real to me that professional entrepreneurs or professionals who were raising money were coming into the space that I was trying to occupy. I had a small small by any standard, startup in Monterey doing residential and small commercial. And you spoke at the school that actually I'm an alumni of. And afterwards, we went to dinner. I've never forgotten how, how certain you were at that time. And it's proven true, by the way, about the nature of how solar was going to be financed, right? And at the time, really, Solar City was in diapers. And they had done a couple of acquisitions, and they were growing, but you guys were coming to market with, with something different. And you were coming just to speak really sort of as an inspired mind about what's possible and the new sort of things that business could bring to the market. But I think that people might misunderstand that you've, and, and think that you've always been an entrepreneur, and that's not the case. Would you give us a sense of how you got to solar and why that became a key interest of yours? You know, I've been passionate about climate and energy issues since my teenage, which was a long time ago, the last century in the 1980s. I came into being a startup guy after a long time of working on climate and energy issues as a campaigner, advocate, troublemaker, rebel, (laughs) reformer, whatever you want to call an activist. And I'd done that since I was a teenager because I was passionate about the planet and the people on it and believe that the big issue of our times, not just like my lifetime, but sort of this century Mm -hmm. is climate and the need for solutions to the problem we've wrought with fossil fuels. So I came to solar because it's the answer. 
Mm. And, and I don't mean to sound too doctrinaire, but it was apparent to me around the turn of the century that we do have the answer. It's in our hands at that time at very small scale. We need now to make this happen. And the way you do that is actually making small businesses large. Mm-hmm. And so while I was at Greenpeace for the first five years or so of the century, I sort of decided in 2006 to turn into an entrepreneur in order to work out how to help make that scale and mm-hmm. go. And so, you know, I've come at it always with that purpose and with right. the intention of building strategic companies that contribute to what will ultimately be the universal and ubiquitous power system Amazing. on Earth, which is yeah. solar power. Yeah. You know, like I have no question, I call it the solar ascent. In 100 years, by 2118, right. find me a model now from Shell or the Saudis or anyone that doesn't conclude we will be a solar-powered civilization, and right. I'll be surprised. So the world's come around to that view. It's now a question of will that happen in 2050, 2070, or 2030, 2040, when it has to happen yeah. for the sake of our kids. The task now is just to scale these businesses as fast and hard as we can. Yeah, which you are hard at work at. One of the things that I find is critical, crucial even, to any startup success is the founding team. Hirschi wasn't in Greenpeace. <laughs> he was a BP, as I recall. And a banker before that. And then a banker before that. Yeah. How does a banker and, a, and an oil tycoon meet up with a Greenpeace guy and decide to start a solar company? Well, you know, it's a good story <laughs> about two people can be friends despite apparent differences, I guess, and, and you know, start something great together because of the common cause. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that is the story of the century. We're going to get past this polarization and bullshit and get on with the task of building a world for our kids and in a way that works for all. And there's also huge opportunity and value creation in that. You know, that was part of it. Like, you know, no pretense that when capitalists find it attractive, that's good news for what you need to grow. Yeah. (laughs) So Birchie had concluded, like I, that, you know, we needed to scale this stuff and that there was a business opportunity at hand. And the way to do that was to make solar easy and affordable and highly accessible to the masses. And so we set about building a company in one channel in some markets to do that and have spent the last decade or so trying to do that in different and various ways. And I'm guessing that the launch of the CSI had something to do with why coming to California? Right. So I had run a campaign in 2000, 2001 era uh, in California for Greenpeace called Clean Energy Now, which had led to some solar public finance and so on and and some adoption of solar elsewhere and knew the solar industry pretty well here. And yeah, sure enough, as Schwarzenegger announced the California Solar Initiative, it was sort of either we'd try this longevity business model we'd come up with sitting over beers in Sydney yeah. In Germany, where there's the feed-in tariff, or in California, where there's the CSI, and we chose California because you know why. <laughs> yeah. For those listening now who are maybe in a year who aren't familiar with Sungevity, Sungevity, I believe, was a company ahead of its time, frankly. I marvel at the number of times I speak to someone now today who's equipped with not just the, the market knowledge, but the technology advancement that makes their company work that Sungevity basically had to create from scratch. You know, things like automating solar site design, automating the sales process, right? To the tune that I find myself saying, it sounds a lot like Sungevity. And they're like, oh yeah, I guess now that I think about mm. it, it is a lot. So my question around Sungevity, and we'll keep this part brief, is would Sungevity 
a thriving company had it started in 2016 instead of 2006? And then what do you think you would do differently today if you started Sanjevity again? First question first, uh, you know, Sanjevity is a thriving company. Uh, well, Not here in the States. Yeah. Oh, that's. But in Europe. That's right. Sanjevity got acquired out of its mm-hmm. pain in Europe where we'd set up shop right. back in 2014. With my good friend Andreas. Correct. And uh, NG owns Sanjevity Europe as Sanjevity Europe. Yeah. And I don't know for sure, but I believe it's probably the biggest rooftop solar company in the residential market in Europe, Yeah, which is a population about the size of the United States. Yeah, So it's a thriving business and it's growing like a weed and it's using exactly the same go-to-market, the same brand, the same tools, the same software as we built here in the States. The the problem here is we're, we're many, but point being a good idea, you're right, it was a good idea, maybe a little bit ahead of its time and timing is very important to an entrepreneur's success. But so too is execution. Right. And the truth is we didn't execute in the States with the investors and other conditions that we had at the mm. end of the decade. But we built a great business with a great customer base that were very happy and a great team and talent and pioneered a bunch of elements that, to your point, kind of to this day ring true as mm. needs in the market. And, and, you know, like, while I think you're probably right, it would still succeed if it were launched today or 2016, had it been launched, it would be doing gangbusters. I find that kind of a bit worrisome because what it reflects is the truth that the U.S. solar market, and I hate to sound like a bit of an old guard guy or something or other, but we haven't innovated a lot since about that time. Right. You know, we're still at $3 a watt on the Mm, roof, right? And in Europe, Sanjeevi Europe's selling at about a buck 20. Buck 20, yeah. And in Australia, our competition, including the people that bought the company there, they're at a dollar. And in China, you can be damn sure they're a lot less than a dollar. And they did 20 gigawatts of rooftop last year in China. Yeah. And we don't have to go to China. We're seeing it installed in Latin America for under a dollar. Right. So my point is we've got to get out of our own way here. And instead, we're getting in our own way, aside from tariffs and all that crap. We're not making it easier, simpler for ourselves or mm-hmm. our customers. Yeah. And the original insight with Sanjevity was always, how do you make this easy and affordable? Mm-hmm. And the easy was the online sunshine stuff, the software, the remote solar design that we invented, all that. And the affordable was the solar lease and the financing solutions that we talked about that day in Monterey. What was the hardest thing, maybe the thing you didn't expect from your Sanjevity days? Uh, the hardest thing was probably dealing with the investors. You know, and, and the fact that at the end of it, and I wasn't there, I left in 2015 to do this job, but, you know, I felt like they probably drove some bad decisions based on short-term financial goals, which mm-hmm. are the kind of set of goals that venture capitalists and the like have, rather than the kind of goals that people who want to build a sustainable long-term business with a purpose want to have. Yeah. And, and whereas we'd always been a, a B corporation since our founding and we'd always had this sort of dual kind of commitment to people on the planet as well as we're going to make a great company for our shareholders and customers and everyone involved. I think that, you know, finding that balance and finding that path became difficult because of the investor set, which is a, a conclusion from that lesson is, you know, pick your investors wisely and be damn sure out there on the listening end of this broadcast that, you know, money is not easy to find by mm-hmm. any means, but it is not the most important commodity in your business. Trust and cultural fit yeah. are much more important. So even while at Sungevity, as you said, you turned towards startups and startup culture, 
And internally, you really were, I would say, among the executive team, the culture setter. You were, a lot of cases, the igniter and the thermometer within the company, making sure that everyone had the vision. From that, you developed a lot of relationships with the young folks that were surrounding you in the Sanjevity, I'll call it hive, but that's a word that they're going to come back to. And I remember early on, you put me in touch with this, like at the time, young lady here in Oakland, and I was living in Oakland, and you had said, hey, I think you should chat with this, with this lady. Her name was Emily Kirsch, and she was running this thing that I was, I was just really not sure or unclear about. I was really unclear about it. The name SFU in Fun Cube. Tell me about Fun Cube and why that spun, why that, why that happened. So Fun was the vision of longevity. Mm-hmm. Why we started it back in the days of beer in Sydney and stuff mm-hmm. was Solar for Universal Need is what that okay. stands for. But it's also a pun. It's like solar and fun and mm-hmm. fun yep. and some strange IKEA furniture piece <laughs> or something. But. So Emily and I started this incubator within Sungevity, really, yeah. like we got space from Sungevity and, but not, you know, overly laden by Sungevity or its needs, but just a place of support for innovators within the company and outside the company. And she went on to build this amazing accelerator program to support the startups, a little bit of help from me, which has in turn become the powerhouse. Yep. You know, so we rebranded it about four years ago, I think, but. This is circa 2012, right? Or even earlier. Even earlier. Yeah. Huh. Doing that showed me how you can provide a space to support startups to start mm. up. And then if you have talent like Emily and people to lend them support, good ideas have greater chance for survival. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we were going through the solar coaster at Sungevity. We're a little bit further down the track. But mm. I was fully aware that Sungevity and Solar City and the small cropper companies that were gangbusters then were never going to fulfill the solar ascent yeah. that we were talking about. There was always going to be more companies needed, more startups, and particularly given the attrition rate and how high the failure of startups in the energy space is because of the incumbency and because of the vested interests and all right. the rest of it, we would need lots of support acts for startups to start up. And so I've really turned that into a business, and, and that's what I do now. Well, you were able to incubate this idea not only inside of Sungevity, but inside of your own head, sufficient that by 2015, you were very much ready for something else. And that something else came along in the form of CalCEF. Many listeners not in California don't know the, the least, they know the least thing about CalCEF. Can you just set the stage for what CalCEF is? Sure. Uh, so the California Clean Energy Fund is actually this sort of the best little venerable organization within the clean energy economy that you've never heard of. I believe it. Set up in 2004, which, you know, is ancient history now, uh-huh. right? Out of the bankruptcy of PG&E at yeah, the turn the, of the century. The local utility here in Northern California. Which had to pay the state a whole bunch of penalties for what they did back then with Enron mm-hmm. gaming and gouging the electricity customers. Sure. And as part of it, a bunch of money was allocated to this independent nonprofit that was set up basically by the president of the Public Utility Commission, a wow. guy called Michael Peavy. And the purpose of that nonprofit was to spread clean energy. I love that CalCEF was even set up by PV. <laughs> and sure enough, in those first years, we did a lot of, you know, yeoman's work that doesn't go down in the history books and isn't well known, but really important things like seeded the original venture funds that kind of got into this space. So Vantage Point, Nth Power, wow. um, Element, which was a DFJ fund, um, 
we set up the Renewable Energy Trust, which was like the first yield no curve way. and spun it out. You know, we advised some of the big digital players around this town on their 100% renewable strategy on how to structure their finances and do that, you know, tax equity and all that stuff. So California Clean Energy Funds had this proud history here in the state of making it happen. Mm-hmm. In 2015, as you say, I had, you know, sort of done my dash with longevity without really realizing it, but I was also very busy with a bunch of other startups, including mm-hmm. Mosaic and on the boards of a couple others and backing some others and whatever. And, and they came and asked me if I was interested in running this place. Oh. And we'd met through the powerhouse. You know, I did, and we've sort of boosted the California Clean Energy Fund in the last couple of years, and, and that's what we're doing now. We've got a new fund that is under management called CalSeed, $25 million from the California Energy Commission, which we're putting out at about $5 million a year. Yeah. Basically. And you've f- already done cohort one. 28 so. companies yeah. last year. We'll do another similar number this year. You know, massive due diligence requirement, technical advisory committee out the wazoo. Mm-hmm. We are looking for businesses that can help California kind of meet its energy and climate goals. Very early stage, sort of pre-prototype companies the people that, you know, your listeners may not yet have heard of, but will in five years' time. Uh-huh, right. You know, that's what we're, our job is, is to go find them and foster them. And it's, it's not just the money, as I was saying earlier. You know, the capital, the financial capital is one piece, but the human capital, the connections, the training, the lawyers, the mentors, the incubators, the accelerators, that stuff's as valuable, if not more valuable, I think, for these startups. So Calcef is an incubator. It's an incubator specifically tasked with helping clean energy related companies very early stage, which the fund believes can bring value to the California economy and beyond. But first and foremost, California. Is that accurate? That is accurate in part, but it's not the whole story anymore. You use the word incubator, which sometimes gets used to connote only a co-working space. But I do like to think of us as an incubator across the state, up and down, working with a bunch of others. We're a, a 501c3, the nonprofit, but I like to call ourselves a 501vc, which <laughs> That's I got from someone else, but uh, enjoy that. And we have a fund, you know, so we can put money in as well, up to $600,000 per company. Beyond that, and sorry if this all sounds too complex no, to your not. listeners, no, but no, it's um, not, it's not. we're trying to replicate that ecosystem of support in other what I call markets that matter. And those are mostly west of here, actually, rather than the east and the rest of the United States. So countries in Asia and Africa where energy demand is booming and the energy transition is going, but mm-hmm. needs the juice that startups provide. Yeah. You know, like take Indonesia, a country of 300 million people. That's the population of the United States. There's like one dominant monopoly power provider. Their plan is 75 gigawatts of coal. And that's how they plan to electrify the country. If that happens from a climate point of view, we're all screwed. Yeah, right? that's terrible. And it's uneconomic and stupid. Mm. They are much better off to do solar plus storage plus right. plus smart energy solutions for 7,000 islands in their archipelago and their population, which will be lower cost, cleaner, less air pollution, less environmental impact, more jobs, better everything. And so we've got an incubator going in Jakarta in the last six months. There's a hackathon this weekend that looks and smells just like the hackathons we've done here in Oakland for the last five years that led to pieces of Sungevity and Mosaic and Powerhive and OmConnect and Utility API and all these companies you now know the name of. We're going to build those in Indonesia next. 
That's phenomenal. And so that is, is that a, is that a specific piece of the fund? That, what's we that call called? that program the New Energy Nexus. New Energy Nexus. So for reasons of branding and, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes we've got an office set up in China, you don't want to be the California Clean Energy yep, Fund. No, I get that. And New Energy is the Chinese word for renewables. They don't yep. call it renewable or mm. good or bad or clean or dirty. Energy, or they yeah, just call it. it new, which is a really great adjective, I think, yeah. in the Mandarin. And... The nexus is the network of mm. these things. So we now have about 79 incubators and accelerators in 29 countries as wow. part of our network. Some of them we've built, one in Sydney called Energy Lab, one in China called Power Lab, one in uh, Indonesia, as I mentioned, at Digitaria. We're building more over time, and we want to bring them you know, together to advance and accelerate their success at supporting startups in their own markets. There's this sort of law and innovation work, which is that every time you double the population of people working on a problem, you triple the rate of innovation around the answer. It sort of makes intuitive sense. Like if you're sitting alone in your bedroom trying to work out, you know, nuclear fission, you're not going to go as hard and fast as if you're talking to some other smart person, right? Assuming Mm. they're smart and you are too. And, and you, you knock heads with someone else and you come up with more different, better ideas. So every time you double the population working on a problem, you triple the rate of innovation. That's like a, a, a loose rule. I could provide like Ken- you some Kennedy's data law. to show it. I call it Kennedy's Law. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of cool. I hadn't thought of that. Um, but we see that all the time. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the more you bring people to bear to this energy transition work, the more you see solutions pop up. And they may not be entirely innovative in the kind of like, I've done a de novo invention. Mm. They might be replicative, Mm -hmm. you know, like ingenious adaption of, you know, the longevity model to Jakarta, you know. Right. Someone's going to do that. Great. Go for it. You know, same story happens across America, right? You know, South Carolina is about to open up to solar. There's going to be a bunch of contractors, you know, that are going to pull all sorts of tools and tricks out of the Californian contracting experience and deploy them faster, smarter, better because they don't have to go through the learning curve. Yeah, but they'll, run, they'll still run headlong into the permitting problem. We'll, we'll, we're going to have Bertie on to talk about how to fix that. Though, yeah, so. good. We could talk for eons about each of the 28 in cohort one, but I want to differentiate between two things. I'm looking at a document and with your permission, I'll post it on the blog post and, and the show notes. It's the 2017 startups that you guys supported. The first part is cohort one. It's 28 companies, and among them are some pretty remarkable companies that I'm aware of. But then I see 12 free electron startups, and among them are some companies that I'm really impressed with. So free electrons is a program we ran for a bunch of utilities, global utility companies that sort of hired us to run an accelerator to bring them the most innovative startups. They're a bit later stage, as you'll note, like yeah. more mature businesses. We wanted to bring them the best and brightest minds to kind of challenge these big incumbents, you know, companies like TEPCO, Energy out of Germany, the Portuguese Monopoly EDP, the Irish Monopoly ESB. So we did get a great crop of companies, built that program, ran it for nine months. You know, out of it, there were, I think, 16 or 17, like, deals done. One of the startups beyond the um, solid state microinverter, you know, got a factory built out of it. Most of them got investments. Fantastic things led from it. And that program is actually being repeated now unto themselves. We just didn't want to run it again Got it. as us because it took a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. And, and we see our job as sort of like 
accelerating accelerators. Yeah. If that makes sense. I, I see that. Yeah. And, and not not just not necessarily just the businesses inside of the accelerator. Right. Okay. I mean, the the numeric goal we've set ourselves is a hundred thousand startups in the next decade. Wow. You know, you've got a cheat sheet there of the forty or so that we got behind last year. I feel great about those companies. There's some real winners. They're wonderful. But we need to do many times that over the next ten years to get to our kind of the outcomes we need. Why do I say a hundred thousand? Let me do the numbers for you, if you like. Most of them will fail. Just the mm-hmm. facts, and not because they're bad ideas or bad people or anything. Longevity U.S. Sure, this you is know just the statistical. Story. Yeah, and and the statistics show ninety percent failure rate. Mm-hmm. Like that's the attrition. If they go through an incubator and accelerator, we probably double the chances of survival. Something like that. Maybe if we're really good and we get some good money in patient capital, we might triple the chances of survival. So they go from 10% to 20 or 30%. Still means 70% of them are going to fail. So if we get 100,000 startups out there driving the, the energy transition globally, that's only 30,000 companies actually, which are meant to be doing the work of repowering the world, mm-hmm. rewiring existing grids and providing electricity and mobility services to a billion or more people that don't currently have them. So 30,000 companies doing a trillion dollars a year of value creation, which is sort of the numbers of the clean energy transition, that's a lot of big businesses. You know, and, and one trillion dollars of value creation, so one year's work, yeah. is a thousand billion dollar businesses. Right. You think about how few of the companies you and I have watched over the last decade have grown to a billion dollar revenue. I mean, Mosaic's one of them. They do yeah. over a billion dollars of debt origination annually. So you could put them in that class. But they're one of how many hundreds that we've seen come and go in the same time. So we need a thousand of those coming up annually yeah. every year for the next 25 years to deliver on the Paris commitment, for example. Yep. That's the kind of numbers game we talk about. I know. You're listening to this episode because you're tired of doing things the old way and looking for a new approach. And that is precisely why my friends at CPS America, a.k.a. Chint Power Systems, have agreed to help make this fresh content possible for you. See, they believe in the power of change and the importance of trying something before others catch on. They are the U.S. market share leader of three-phase string inverters, pioneering that approach since before it was cool. With over two gigawatts shipped in America, Chint's feature-rich, high-performance inverters and its nimble service team are ahead of the pack, just like you. If you'd like to find out what CPS can do for your CNI and utility business, reach out to me for an intro, nico at mysuncast.com. Or you can reach out to them directly and just let them know you heard it here on Suncast. So there's a few things I want to make sure I drill down on to understand. Well, first, how a startup founder might think about joining an incubator. Because I think one of the things that many folks outside of California or New York or, or Boston, um, some of these hotbeds, Austin, they aren't familiar with incubators. And when they become familiar with them, they're not sure, well, how much can I get? And how much is that going to take of my equity? First and foremost, how does someone become CalCEF-funded company? Do they have to be here in California? So for CalSeed, we do an annual solicitation at the start of the year, like the first quarter, and they either have to be a California company or be able to benefit California ratepayers, as yep. I was saying earlier. So there's a pretty strong you know, requirement there. And then it's a very competitive process, to be honest. We looked at hundreds of companies to come to the 20 or so mm-hmm. that we funded last year, for example. 
you know, I would say that for folk out there listening and thinking about starting up a startup, you know, incubators and accelerators aren't for everyone, mm. but they probably are more than you know. And by incubator and accelerator, we don't really mean, you know, something that necessarily takes equity in your company. It may just be a co-working space that you rent a desk at. Uh-huh. But the benefits of the network effect, the same function of that Kennedy's law as you coined it, exist at the level of a co-working space. In the hive. You're, you're sitting in the hive, exactly. You're sitting alone in your basement with your dream of a big business. You're sitting next to some other person with a dream of a big business wondering about how do I form a company? Where do I register my trademark or whatever? You'll probably learn more by talking to the person in the cubicle next to you than you will on Google, bluntly. Like there's just these synergies in in the true sense of the word, unusual emergent values that exist from that alone. Yeah, you're you're able to short circuit that. Plus there's the fixed programs, the exposure to funds, the introductions, the brown bags, the events, all that stuff, which generally get put on top in the incubators and accelerators. So, you know, I mean, the bottom line is the innovation ecosystem, say in media or music or mm-hmm. other spaces, has demonstrated that this technique works mm-hmm. of using physical spaces and accelerator yeah. programs to innovate and create thriving networks of businesses. We're now trying to deploy that at scale to the energy problem. Yeah. So mechanically, if I wanted to join CalCEF or others, we'll just use CalCEF as an example. You've got $5 million to deploy. You deployed it over 28 companies. You're going to keep it around that number. Does that mean that each company is about 175000 or is it deployed very differently based on the company's needs? Pretty average. Okay. So we've got strictures. And, and the good news about our money is it's actually a grant. Yeah. Oh, it's we, a grant. It's not equity. So we're not taking a piece of your hide. We're trying to provide the best kind of money because we're very thoughtful about it. We treat it like equity. Like the, the diligence is like something you get from actually a very few seed funds would be as sophisticated as the yep. technology advisory committee we have, for example. But at the end of it, you've had a grant through us from the CEC to do your work. And then we also do a lot of work trying to introduce you to the next capital providers. You okay. Know, like, we're trying to provide non-dilutive money so that you can get as far down the roadway as you can to then go find the, the, the seed fund, the angel investors, and, and the VCs if you need that. And we also encourage entrepreneurs to, to think about other ways of building a business. There's a lot of mythology in this town that you know we're all going to look like Mark Zuckerberg or something or other, and that's very unlikely, especially in the energy game. Yeah. There's going to need to be a lot more building businesses the old-fashioned way, bootstrapping them, using debt, using friends and family, using sweat, and and it's a long, hard slog. Which is another reason to go back to the incubator and accelerator. You know, the the biggest lesson I learned at Sungevity and with other companies I've been involved with is this is going to take longer and be harder than I imagined going into it. And probably the most important thing is to have peers and people Uh around you that are sharing the pain and sharing the joy and sharing the journey with you. Yep. That solar coaster is long. You know, all the cliches about this is uh-huh. not a, a sprint. It's a marathon or it's a marathon of sprints. You know, yeah. that's all true. And you'll go farther together. You might go faster alone, but you won't get as far. I love that we just coined Kennedy's Law here on Suncast. So we'll uh, be sure to proliferate that for you. The next segment I want to move into here just to bring things up a bit, is what I call hot or hype. And I'll name a specific market or a topic 
you spend 30, 60 seconds, tell me what you think. Is it a really hot segment? Is it all hype? And why? And we'll start with DG Energy Storage. Hot. By which I believe, as you know, that the long term, and I'm talking about you know that solar ascent turn of the century, is ultimately a world in which power is produced at the point of use. Mm-hmm. And for that, storage ultimately will be there. But even in the midterm, you look at a country like Australia, where you've had massive penetration of renewables on the rooftop, storage is starting to go in just as fast mm-hmm. and hard and, and as much penetration behind the meter because of economics. It makes sense. And it's delaying and destroying coal value like you wouldn't believe. So yeah. it's a very important part of the recipe I'm after, which is how do we stop fossil fuels sooner? Mm-hmm. But it's also ultimately the most economic model. You place the power supply with the least intermediary between it and its end use as possible. Mm-hmm. And if that means co-locating some storage, that's great. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the ultimate DG storage is your vehicle or your scooter or your bicycle. Don't get ahead of me. <laughs> okay. But speaking of local generation, a lot has been made of the notion of microgrids. So I'll move to the next topic, hot or height, microgrids. Again, hot. I mean, I'm probably going to be your bull on all of these topics, I guess. I, I'm, a, I'm on the board of a couple of microgrid-related businesses okay. in emerging markets. Okay. I mean, I've spent a lot of my personal... So is the caveat then hot and emerging markets? Uh, not, not no. I, I mean, I, I think there's a great case for microgrid development in the built environment in a place like California also. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be proven in... Senegal before it is in Sacramento. Yeah. That's fine. Again, we'll go through a transitional phase where we're sort of moving towards this ultimately distributed end game with solar power being provided free from the sky every day, converted at the point of use. But in between here and there, we're going to use microgrids and other fractalizations of our existing infrastructure to make that transition. Hot or hype, electric vehicle grid integration? Hot. Again, it's, it's rolling storage. I mean, you know, it's already happening. And uh-huh. I'm a, a big EV booster. I've had uh-huh. two of them so far, and, and I got an electric wheel, an electron wheel on my bicycle, and I love the scooters outside on the sidewalk, and right. I think they are changing mobility as we speak, and they are a solution to the challenge of balancing the grid in the modern era. Take California, where curtailment's such a crisis, by electrifying the vehicle fleets, the buses, the trains, the trucks, etc. we can suck that stuff up, and we can use it, and we can dispatch it as we need, as a DER. That's all technologically doable. It's just got to become a business when the regulators get out of the way. Yeah, and there's a major difference, obviously, between the technological capability right now for transactive energy between mobile storage and the grid. But I think I agree with you, and certainly towards your last statement, the electrification of the public transit sector is the bellwether for how this will work. And it is going to be, in my view, the playground is going to be the, the experimental science that allows us to deploy this transactive energy, because in that case, you've got so many more kilojoules, megajoules of power that are being driven around and parked overnight. What do you think of the various commitments being made and the level of conservatism? So LA committed to 100% electric buses by 2030, I believe. And LA, I think the third largest metropolitan area in the US outside of New York and Houston. New York committed to 2040. 
Why would there need to be a 10-year gap between New York's electrification of the buses and L.A.? There doesn't need to be, and neither of them is, right? They're all going to do it by 2025 just because of economics. You know, like if they're replacing their fleet, which is, I think, on a 12-year cycle, yeah. they're not going to buy diesel or gas buses anymore. Mm, right. Like, why would you? The total cost of ownership is greater, and you're killing your kids with the fumes. Mm-hmm. I think those days are gone. The decision will be made by the market, not by... Unless... Politics gets completely in the way and the regulators demand that we don't switch out till 2040. Right, right. Which is entirely possible in this country. There's a lot of protectionism. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, those numbers are important in mandated markets that you set the goal and you go to them, like the renewable portfolio standards history here in California. Sure. But increasingly, they're being overrun by the reality of the market. Correct. You know, the disruption has begun. That's right. And electric vehicles, electric buses in particular, you're not holding that genie back. That's out of the bottle, baby. Yeah. Hot or hype? Blockchain for energy transactions. Hot. <laughs> I'm going to find one. I'm going to find one. <laughs> uh, you know, again, to be proven, and I understand people's hesitation and, and desire to describe it as hype, but I do believe that there is a total cost of servicing all these little things in a truly transactive grid that is greater than our current software and human middleware can handle and do cost effectively. So we need something like the blockchain to manage that autonomous energy entities that can transparently manage my scooter deciding to discharge rather than charge right now because the value of the kilowatt hour is greater to do that. Yeah. If I have to set and forget even that software, it's not gonna happen. Mm If there's some system like blockchain for energy trading offers, mm-hmm. I can see that coming to pass. Okay. Final hot or hype? Danny Kenny running for office. Hype. That's yes. horrible. Why, why do you <laughs> hate me? Hype. Where? Where did that come from? <laughs> okay. So let's take a bit, uh, a bit of a, a reflection again. Look in the mirror. If you think about the Sunjevity days, obviously it prepared you well as a startup founder. You're more than a board advisor for a couple of companies, right? You are called on on a daily basis, on an hourly basis to, in many ways, give guidance and advice. How do the struggles that you guys overcame, both with investors and with the market, inform your advice? And what are some of the things that you see flowing out of that that now help the many companies that you're in, investing with? Yeah, I mean, there's probably too many to That's fine. fill your tape recorder, but, you know, they come up all the time, and you're right, I do have the, the privilege of sort of being in that role and working with a lot of great companies at different stages and trying to be supportive and useful. And I think mostly what I do is reflect sort of my authentic feelings and emotional experience of mm-hmm. it. You know, like, be true to yourself and your values. Don't, you know, shortchange those, most importantly. Stick with people you trust and know, and, and that doesn't mean groupthink, nor yeah. does it mean sort of, you know, self-select in recruitment. And, and one of my big bugbears is that our industry has become less diverse rather than more mm-hmm. quickly, and that's a problem for our long-term success with women and minorities and, and the range of factors. But pick a friend to partner with, mm-hmm. you know, and, and consider it a partnership. There is no, you know, success without a team. You yeah. know, it's not about you. It's about us. And, and that all sounds like hackneyed expressions, uh-huh. but hell, if, if you don't have that, you're not going to get through. And if you're 
here for the wrong reason, like just a short-term flip and a bunch of money, get out and go to another industry. Mm. This is long, hard haul. Yeah. And that's the one thing I learned, you know, mm. like. Yeah, if you don't believe that, ask Len Jurek or ask the guy, the boys right. at uh, Mosaic. <laughs> yeah, and, and we've only just begun. Those industries are nascent. Like yeah. rooftop solar in this country's touched, what, a million, two million roofs? Mm. There's 80 million to do. Wow. And most of those will be done in the next 10 years. So the rate of growth, the problems they will have to handle in terms of their business's success as Sunrun grows to scale, as Mosaic provides 50% of the market's debt, is going to be you know in the multiples of what they have to handle today. So you got to be doing it with friends. I mean, I, one funny thing is a lot of the business books say don't do business with friends. I'm like, who else would you do business with? <laughs> you got to, yeah, you got to like the people you're working with, man. Oh, it's damn. like. It's a, if it's if it's true that people buy from their friends, it's even more true that you got to work with people yeah. you like. Yeah. What do you find that a lot of the founders you see a lot of plans, a lot of business plans. What do you find that startup founders in particular routinely miss, or they make false assumptions around their customer? You know, mm. always. I mean, customer centrism was one of the things I think we got right with Sunjevity. Really mm-hmm. trying to focus on what you know, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, the potential early adopters of solar in America would want. And we worked that out through, you know, being in the home and studying their behavior and all that stuff. And, you know, it's a classic, again, a cliche, I hate to sound like this, but, you know, from other industries too, if you're not designing to the needs and wants of your end buyer, then you're not solving anyone's problem. Yeah, I was going to ask you actually, what you learned or continue to learn from other industries that you find is applicable to solar and how, how you use that to influence the thought process of the entrepreneurs that you touch. Anything in particular that you found is a really good way to think about it from outside of the industry? Oh, lots of things. Okay. I mean, you know, I think that's one of the things we did again. Uh, yeah. and, and, and always at Powerhouse, we talk about this, you know, not being the technology obsessed geeks that the solar industry have been and may uh-huh. I culpa, I'm like that too in, sure. intellectually and personally. I love de geeking out on, you know, the, the 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 efficiency of the cell or the, you know, the cycle life of the battery and all the rest of it. But yeah. that is of no interest to most of the humans that we're trying to sell our wares to. And yeah. the goods and services need to be packaged in a way that is palatable and interesting and so on for the end user. And and so other industries are much better at that than we have been historically, I think. And that's true on the finance product side too. You know, like how do you make a loan product that's understandable? How do you do legalese that's acceptable? How do you, you know, get to the FICO crowd that we currently can't serve with the solar industry, you know, which is the mass of America. That stuff is going to be where the winning companies will go, you know, the customer orientation. Yeah. Talk to me about CalCharge. The CalCharge is one of the programs we have here at the California Clean Energy Fund that was sort of set up as a public-private partnership that we sheltered. It's an example of, you know, we're in this weird place where we sit in this ecosystem. And in this case, it was an insight out of Lawrence Berkeley National Lab that they want to help commercialize companies with their technology coming up in the national lab system. And they want to tap the labs to help commercialize companies outside the lab system, but utilizing these incredible resources that, you know, the Department of Energy has built over decades in America. And so CalCharge is, a, a, a as I say, a public-private partnership with the labs here in California, Nash, uh, Lawrence Livermore, Lawrence Berkeley, and Slack down at Stanford. 
we have a cooperative research and development agreement with them so startups can go in and out of the labs at some level to, to do work. But also we have big utilities, unions like the IBW Nika, other big corporates like Bosch and Toyota and others over time have been members to help facilitate energy storage development in California. The most exciting news on the CalCharge front right now is that we've just partnered with LG Chem to do a battery challenge that'll have almost $2 million worth of prizes for next-gen battery chemistries, lithium-ion and beyond. And, and, you know, we are really excited to be launching that in a couple of weeks. So check out batterychallenge.co for details or to sign up and get more information when that comes out, depending on when this broadcasts. Anything in particular, rounding out the conversation around CalCEF and, and maybe in CalCharge in the first cohort, anything around that first cohort that you're particularly proud of or that surprised you? And, and it's okay if you talk about specific companies. We're not going to talk about all companies. What I'm really pleased with, I mean, we've got a good spread of companies in terms of technology. There's several battery businesses, eight of them, I believe, like battery-related component parts, a gaseous electrolyte, which I think is really innovative. Mm. What I'm proud about, about a lot of them and a lot of the other sector, is the, the women leadership. I think it's 50% mm. of the cohort are entrepreneurs or teams led by women. Is that intentional? It is in part. We, we have a commitment to ensure diversity within our pipeline. But I also think it's a tribute to these in our first round that we were able to find such compelling cases. You know, the South 8 Technologies out of San Diego, for example, a woman CEO leading an incredible company that was really kind of contrarian, you know, you've probably heard in the battery space, there's a lot of talk about solid state electrolytes mm -hmm. instead of the, the liquid electrolytes. They went the other way and they've gone gaseous and the advantages are things like they can go through a much bigger temperature range, wow. different pressure. They're safer in the sense that if there's an event with the battery, the gas just escapes, you know, things like that. Mm. And they're, they're doing it. Another great company called Opcondus with a optical switching system for transmission that could save a massive amount of wasted heat and energy in the transmission grid, led by a woman who's married to the technologist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Wow. You know, great stories like this out of Central Valley, California, you know, Manteca. Mm. You know, this is not Steve Jobs's garage. This is right. sort of cow country. Yeah. I think it's really important that we reach into the depth of the community, find the great ideas that aren't just straight out of Stanford and the Silicon Valley, but rather all the genius of all of California and, you know, the women and, and other communities that are not generally encouraged to be the startup founders. You know, they're not told this is them. They're not given role models much in the media and elsewhere. And yet, of course, that 90% of the population that ain't like that are going to have lots of great ideas. Yeah. And we want to find them and fund them. One of the things that also stands out to me is, I mean, I, I love that it's 50% of the cohort, but we are seeing now, and Emily from Powerhouse linked to this recently on LinkedIn, the statistics around the number as a percentage of our overall, overall venture that are taking their companies to billion dollar valuations, right? It turns out that mm. as a percentage of venture funded companies, women led companies do way better, do way better, <laughs> like Four to five hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Factor four or five x. Yeah. And I mean, you know, venture capital as a class of investors across the economy have been pretty poor. Yeah. Actually, there's five or six firms that have done really well. Yeah. 
and then thousands that have done really poorly for yeah. their investors. And part of the diagnosis, in my view, is that 96% of their investments have been in white male founders. Mm. So 4% have been in not. That is insane in this country. And so there's clearly an asymmetrical advantage to going out and finding and supporting women and minorities. You know, you will find more good deals and do better there if you're an investor. Just logically, that makes sense. Aside from it's the right thing to do and they're probably solving real problems as opposed to, you know, the mom problems that mm. these startups that are like, you know, I need a delivery service for the chocolate ice cream that I like. I need someone to pick up my laundry because I never learned how to do it and all the things that the frat boys have trouble with, which is where a lot of VC has gone over the last decade. So I get a lot of my advice now from folks like you on the podcast, but it's traditionally and I think historically from books. I think there's a lot of wisdom in books. And I believe that leaders are readers. And I often like to glean from folks that I know to be well-read what book you are gifting or recommending? I've been using Exponential Organizations a lot, mm -hmm. which is sort of one of the library of books out of the Singularity University crew, which I don't mean to get too carried away with mm -hmm. that sort of abundance mentality, although I share it. Exponential Organizations is almost like a workbook to think about how to get to scale mm. for organizations today. You know, I, I'm a big Rebecca Solnit fan, the woman who coined mansplaining is what she's famous for, but... <laughs> She also did a great book probably a decade or more ago called Hope in the Dark. And, you know, I think given the times we're in where polarization and populism has overrun good thinking in too many corners of the world, mm. it's time for some of that. And, and, you know, I'm an optimist by choice, but you also sometimes have to dig deep and find it. And things like books like that help me do that. Danny, what are some key lessons or takeaways from the most important mentors in your life? I had a mentor when I was a teenager in Australia who was a leader of the Communist Party of Australia mm. and a big socialist trade union organizer who was banned at the time from both the United States because he was a Communist Party member and the USSR because he was a critic of Soviet industrialization. And uh, I think he taught me to challenge orthodoxies mm. and I think there's a lot of groupthink and poor thinking amongst startup investors, things like betting on the same looking people, right. for example, or assuming that the mode will be a 10 year timeline for a company in the energy transition to succeed, like software app for that or this, you know, they're just not going to have the same dynamics and performance. And so being a bit iconoclastic and challenging conventional norms is probably the best advice I ever got. So you are on the Solar 100, and that is not by accident. You're an influencer in our industry, and your voice is heard in many different places. But if folks were to try to get more of you or read more of your writing, how would they do that? I do write a bit on Medium. We have a blog, a book of zebras about the companies we're backing. I tweet and do all that. I wrote a book back in the day called The Rooftop Revolution, and then more recently have helped with this Accelerate This book. We've just published it, mm -hmm. the California Clean Energy Fund around accelerators and incubators. And I'll be doing more as much as I can, probably Medium and the Twitter feed is the yeah, place to be. Yeah, at Danny K's Fund, we'll definitely link to that one. Uh, you're on LinkedIn, and certainly if, if, there's, if there's an email that someone, if someone wants to email you directly. Danny.Kennedy at calcef.org, but I'm crap at getting back to people, but I'll try <laughs> my best. 
Do we have time for the idea around zebras for organizations? Sure. You know, again, to the talk about diversity and inclusion in the innovation ecosystem, a group of women up in Portland actually got sick of pitching VCs and not getting supported because they didn't look right and created this thing they call the Zebra Manifesto, which is about companies that aren't unicorns. Hmm. The idea was sort of to reject the whole kind of nonsense that you're going to have companies that go from zero to hero at that scale and that speed often. I mean, maybe sometimes you will and do, uh, surely, but many of those sort of mythological creatures like unicorns, you know, when you dig deep, was Snapchat really worth all that? Was, you know, this, that and the other company as good as they were claimed to be Groupon, etc.? And so um, they use the analogy or whatever the word is of a zebra company, a very remarkable creature, Uh quite unique and rare in some places, but also something you can find and go and see in the world. And interestingly, zebras, they describe, have this sort of herd behavior, which is very social, Mm -hmm. where they take care of each other and they inhabit roles in the ecosystem. And so for them, zebra companies are ones which travel in packs and they may return two or three X, not 10 X. Yeah. They may do well as a business, but they also do well as a social enterprise and they deliver for the community. And so, you know, I like to think that we're building a herd of zebras in the energy industry, which will fulfill this solar ascent and deliver us from the climate problem that we have while creating jobs, creating value, and returns to investors, but not these egregious, greedy returns that too many require these days. I love that analogy. And uh, it seems there is a felt need in the industry. Even uh, Reid Hoffman on his podcast is talking about new terms that we could coin, like the phoenix or the sea turtle and, and how that would work. I like zebra. I think it fits well with how B corporation mentality has proliferated. Before we go, is there anything that the Suncast audience could do? To help, is there something that you would have as an ask? A hundred percent. We're a, a nonprofit. Uh, there's a donate page on our website. If they're willing, we'd love to have a regular contribution, more than a one-off. Ten bucks a month is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Hundred bucks is better, um, mm-hmm. but we appreciate it all. And whatever's meaningful to you, we'd appreciate if you can contribute, so we can continue to go and build equity in the clean economy and drive innovation with the new energy nexus and beyond. Let's end today with a bold prediction. Danny, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I think electricity will be virtually free by about 2030. This is probably not a completely novel idea, but very soon relative to the timeline I've already been working in the space, it'll be like Wi-Fi. Remember mm. how Wi-Fi was so hard to find and get and you had to pay so much to have it in a small space? And now there are cities that broadcast Wi-Fi everywhere. I remember, yeah. And it's a free public good, and electricity will go there. Well, Danny, that indeed is a bold statement, a bold prediction. And I believe that it is uh, that it, we will see that come true in our lifetime. Thank you so much for joining us on Suncast. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Nika. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warrior. But it doesn't have to be the end of our time together. I'm going to be sharing a lot more interesting stuff with Solar Warriors subscribed to my email list and to my Energy Tribe patrons. So if that's interesting to you, please be sure to join the Suncast mailing list at mysuncast.com. And if you're away from your computer, just text SUNCAST to 345345. That's S-U-N-C-A-S-T on your phone to the number 345345 and you'll be added to the list. You'll also get our one-page webinar guide as a free gift. 
You know, I really do listen to your feedback and the proofs in the first two minutes of this show. If you're digging the new intro and even this outro, the music, the pace, whatever it is, I'd love to hear it. I'm at N-I-C-O-M-E-O, Nico Mayo on Twitter. And more importantly, if you aren't, I want to know that too. I want to know why and what else you suggest to fix it. Oh, hey, are you interested in listening to a little snippet from the next episode? And the strategy, like anything else in life, setting your intention, setting your mantra, understanding your mission, understanding why you're here and why you're doing it is really important. That right there was Glenna Wiseman of Identity3, and she is a solar marketing maven. So tune in next Thursday for that full episode. While I still have your attention, I'd like to say thank you again. The fact that you're still listening tells me you truly value the work we're bringing to life. And if that's true, would you also consider supporting the podcast financially by becoming a member of the Suncast Energy Tribe? I'm grateful to you if you already joined. And every week we are getting new members. You can join them. Just go to mysuncast.com forward slash member and see what else being in the Suncast Tribe means. I look forward to formally welcoming you as well, my friend. And thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.